This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hey everyone, we've got a double header for you this week. It is a two-part podcast with one guest. The guest this week is going to be Tobias Carlisle. You may know him as the host of Acquire's podcast or Value After Hours. We're a big fan of both. And he's also the managing director of Acquire's Funds. You're currently listening to the first part of the double header. This is a, a, a retro episode. We originally interviewed Tobias back in 2019 before we actually had a podcast. Uh, so this is an audio that we just used to uh, write some blogs. Uh, but we wanted to release this because we, we've invited him back, which is part two if you want to listen to that. Uh, but just to cover up this first episode, it is a discussion between Juan and Tobias why they think that value shouldn't be declared dead. They also discuss what might be a catalyst for recovery in value investing and whether or not reversion to the mean still has a key role to play within value investing. We've got two quick definitions to cover before we start. So ETFs are exchange-traded funds. They're a type of security that tracks an index sector or commodity and they're purchased and sold on the stock exchange just like regular stocks are. They also discuss EV to EBITDA. This is a ratio that is a popular valuation multiple and is used to determine the fair market value of a company. EV stands for enterprise value, and EBITDA is earning before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Please enjoy this first part. Uh, if you want to hear an updated view from Tobias, download part two. So we have today uh, a guest on the value perspective, uh, Tobias Carlisle. Tobias is a deep value investor. He has written four books. The last one, but you will correct me if, if, if I'm wrong, The Acquirer's Multiple. He also runs um, The Acquirer's Fund blog uh, together with Green Pact. And he recently launched The Acquirer's podcast uh, interview series um, not so long ago. Um, Tobias, welcome to The Value Perspective. Thanks, Juan. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, maybe it could be uh, a good starting point for you maybe to introduce yourself. Um, how did you end up uh, be becoming a deep value investor? Um, what, what was that process like? Sure. I was, a, I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in Australia. Uh, I started in, the, in April 2000, which was the very top of the dot-com boom. I went in thought, thought I was going to be doing... Um, uh, IPOs and venture capital, the market collapsed and it turned into a different sort of uh, investment environment where it was, uh, there were a lot of activists, although we didn't know that they were activists at the time, didn't have a, that, that name for them. They were co corporate raiders who'd come back uh, from the 80s and they were trying to get control of these dot-coms that had raised a lot of cash, but um, in, the, in a sort of more promising market, looked like they could turn that into something even though they were burning, uh, they were losing money with every sale. And so these guys shut down those businesses. And then uh, the market sort of shifted into a, it became a, a leverage buyout boom in the early 2000s. So I was working as a lawyer through that whole period. But I, I thought if the market ever crashes like that again, I'll try to invest in some of these um, positions. In the, in the meantime, I got transferred to the 
well, uh, to the San Francisco office of the firm that I was working for where I was doing some tech M&A, doing bolt-on deals for uh, some of the bigger tech companies, some of the online companies. And uh, I eventually went back to Australia, worked as general counsel of a public company, which was a telecommunications company that ran dark fiber cables. Um, that was sold and I had, I had helped list that company while I had been in Australia. And so I had a little bit of capital and I wanted to learn investing. So I, I moved into a shop that was uh, undervalued assets with a catalyst and the catalyst was typically activism where we'd take a position and we'd um, lobby to have assets sold or have the structure unwound or whatever the case may be. I did that for a few years and then I set up my own um, small partnership in Australia. Uh, I eventually moved to Los Angeles. My wife is a Los Angelino. Uh, and so since I've been in Los Angeles, I've been running a firm. We've recently launched a new fund. Uh, what we do in that is it's long, short, deep value. So what that means is we buy uh, very traditional deep value names on the long side. We're looking for balance sheet strength primarily, and then a business that's at a cyclical trough, at a business cycle trough. And we try to buy those looking to see the, uh, the business improve and also to see uh, the, the, the discount between the price and the intrinsic value close. And on the short side, we look for companies that are uh, extremely overvalued to the extent that we can ascertain a value for them. And typically, they've got very junky balance sheets, lots of debt. They're losing money on a free cash flow basis, so negative free cash flow. And the way that they're staying alive is by issuing stock or by selling debt. So that's the portfolio. It's 30 names long, 30 names short, equal weight, uh, 130-30. So we put about 4.3% into the longs and the shorts are about 1% each. Okay, that's, uh, that's super interesting. Um your, your approach is very much based on what you call the acquirer's multiple. Um, maybe you can, you can give us a little bit of light on, on what is the acquirer's multiple, how does it work, what's the, what's the framework behind it? Sure. Uh, well, in 2012, I published a book called Quantitative Value. And in that book, so I, I partnered with uh, a guy who was a PhD at the Booth School of Business in the States, which is sort of the best quant school. It's where Eugene Farmer and... Cliff Asness and several other guys went, uh, Cliff Asness who runs AQR. And so we went and tested every bit of fundamental uh, research that we could find on value investment, whether it came from industry or whether it came from academia. And we worked out what worked and what had stopped working. And then we built a model from that. And uh, that model ended up becoming an ETF. And so um, through that process, I realized that there was this unusual phenomenon in really undervalued stocks where uh, sometimes the what it's it's sort of a little bit uh, counterintuitive in the sense that the better the business sometimes the performance isn't as great and the worse the business the you, you get better performance and the way a simple way of describing that is if you look at something like Joel Greenblatt's magic formula which he wrote a book called the little book that beats the market the magic formula is a very simple quantitative expression of what Buffett does. So on one hand, it looks for a high earnings yield, which he defines as EBIT on enterprise value. And on the other hand, he looks for a high return on invested capital, which is just EBIT operating income on the invested capital. 
And so he ranks those two, buys the ones that have the best combined ranking, so it's the, the highest quality for the lowest price, and then watches the, how, they, how they perform. We independently tested that through a whole lot of the – tested it to the academic gold standard, lagged the data, which means that you're not allowed to buy in the back test the stock until June using the end-of-year data from – from December the year before, so there's no look a- look ahead bias in the results, and then we market capitalization weighted them, which means you put more money into the bigger stocks because that was a criticism of this strategy. What we found is that that strategy de- does in fact beat the market pretty consistently, does better on raw and risk adjusted basis. Uh, what I wanted to do though, what I noticed as we were doing that is that when you look at the returns, the bulk of the return. In fact, more than all of the return for the strategy comes from the value side and the return on invested capital actually reduces the returns. So if you eliminate the requirement that these companies have a high return on invested capital, what you find is that you get better performance on a raw basis and better risk-adjusted performance, which is very counterintuitive. So that that uh, individual uh, metric, the acquirer's multiple, that's just EBIT on enterprise value. I find that that is the best at, if you, it, it's better than combining it with a, with a quality metric. And then the other curious thing is that if you run, if you just compare every uh, value ratio, so a value ratio is like price to book, price to earnings, enterprise value to free cash flow, EV to EBITDA, all of those sort of things. EV to EBIT has traditionally been through the, through the bulk of the the, the data has been the best performed metric. So it's this uh, it's a metric that has performed very well in backtest and it does better than combining it with all of these uh, ret- profitability metrics like return on invested capital. In the fund, what we try to do is we, we need to find matching cash flows. We want to make sure it's got a healthy balance sheet. We want them to be buying back stock. We do lots of other things, but just as a as a basic principle to sort of understand what we're doing, we use the acquirer's multiple as uh, as our primary metric, and we uh, we think that it works because it, it it operates like an acquirer does. It thinks about the whole purchase price. So when you if you're an acquirer and you get control of a company, you have to be able to service the debt. You have to be able to service any preference shares. You're responsible for any underfunded pensions and so on. And you, sometimes you get. You, you can use the cash that they have in the bank, which might reduce the price that you're paying. And then you compare that to the operating income, which is the the, the recurring revenue, excluding any sort of extraordinary or non-recurring items that you're able to, that the company earns. So those two metrics together, in some ways, it's operating like a private equity firm, thinking about the total purchase price. And in some ways, it's operating like an activist looking for a, a, a lazy balance sheet. And so it's for a variety of reasons, it's a very um, solid metric for finding undervalued companies. So that's actually very interesting to us because um, we follow a very similar approach to screen for value or deep value ideas. So I think that the, so what we do is we would use an enterprise value to the average uh, 10 year NOPAT to the net operating profit after taxes. And that's the only metric that we would use to screen uh, for value ideas. Um, one of the things that um, 
I would like to ask you is you just you just mentioned that when you were doing all of this backtesting, the return the return on invested capital as a quality metric, actually you found that or you guys found that uh, it was detriment to returns. Right. Um, how does that um, how is that received nowadays? Um, given the um, switch to a more kind of quality compound value world where a lot of people actually embrace or believe that the ROIC is um, a very important metric to take into account? It's a great question. Uh, so w when I, when I, uh, the deep value came out in two, the deep value is another one of my books came out in 2014 and the, uh, the performance differential between the, acquirers multiple by itself and the magic formula was extremely wide and that gap has narrowed a little bit because return on invested capital seems to be a metric that does better in a very growth oriented market so return on invested capital would have actually helped in the late 1990s in the dot-com boom dot-com bubble adding return on invested capital would have helped a deep value strategy keep up with the market where value tends to fall behind in markets like that. And the same things happen now. So because it's more of a growth-oriented market, the more growth you have in your portfolio, the better you've done, the more glamour you have in your portfolio. And what return on invested capital does is it helps you identify those sort of companies. In the past, what has happened is the cycles for uh, growth and glamour have been reasonably short. They've only been two or three years where value underperforms and then value comes roaring back. For some reason, this most recent cycle has been quite extended for quality. Uh, well, I shouldn't say quality. It's been quite extended for the, the glamour and the growth type companies. So um, if you, you know, the, Peter Lynch, who's a, who's a famous US investor, he used to say you uh, find these quality companies that you like and then you do a valuation and you buy them based on, you try to buy them for less than they're worth. Well, that's, that, that step hasn't been a helpful step in the most recent run. You've been paid for trying to identify, you, you've been paid for buying these growth companies at any price. And the more you've, pay, you, the more you've been prepared to pay for them, the better you've done. And it's one of the... Uh, curious things about the market i think it's one of the things that keeps value investing working is that there are these periods like this where it doesn't work and particularly deep yeah. value because in some ways this is the purest version of it so uh, value investing has certainly struggled and it's always hard because buffett is an advocate for a sustainable high return on invested capital and to say that uh that buffett uh it sounds like what i'm saying is that buffett is wrong when i'm saying that I don't think that return on invested capital adds much. Uh, that's 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 always been a difficult argument to make. That's why I wrote the the, the, the first book. Uh, that's why I wrote Deep Value because I wanted to show quantitatively that it wasn't the case that return on invested capital helped. But it's been a very difficult argument more recently because it hasn't worked as well. But I fully expect that the market will recover for value at some stage, and it's entirely possible that we're in the early stages of it now. Well, we are we are we are all value investors crossing our fingers. <laughs> um, but 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 I'm, I'm interested in, in so when 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 you explain this to um, to new investors or even to your investor base, um, what kind of reaction do you get? Because um, I would say that in, in the current environment where 
maybe quality has done very well over the course of the last, I would say the last 10 years, um, a lot of people would say that that's the way to go and that it doesn't really matter, uh, provided that you have a very high return on investment capital and you believe that that's sustainable, which is which is the other component of that, whether or not that return, return on investment capital is going to fade down over time, um, then you should you shouldn't pay that much attention to the price that you're paying. Right. It's uh, it's been a it's been a funny decade where a very high return on invested capital has been helpful. I I want my the companies that I own to have a high return on invested capital. I just don't want to pay for a high return on invested capital. I want to buy them close to the bottom of their business cycle when the return on invested capital is potentially negative because sometimes they lose money through the bottom part of the cycle. But then as I hold them, the return on invested capital improves because that's what happens as, as, a, as a company, as a cyclical company cycles or as a company that's just had some short-term problem works that problem off. And then what you find is that your company becomes increasingly valuable and increasingly valuable relative to its own fundamentals too. And so that's the best of both worlds. You get that, return, that increasing return on invested capital. There's some reasonably well-known research that demonstrates that that's the case. If, you're, if you want to buy high growth, if you want to hold high growth companies, you don't want to buy hold high growth companies. What you want to buy is a company that's closer to the bottom of its business cycle. Because what happens with high growth and glamour is that it invites competition, high return on invested capital just puts a big target on the back of a business because it means that there's some super normal profits to be had and so that in- attracts a lot of competition. There are very few companies that have a sufficiently wide mode or a sufficiently strong competitive advantage that they can resist that competition and the problem is for the most part everybody knows what they are. So we all know that at the moment we know that it's Microsoft. Uh, there's, there's various others that have very high high moats, uh, wide moats, high, high walls to the castles. Um, but this has been an unusual period where paying up for those companies has worked. Typically, it doesn't work as well. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you mentioned before uh, when you were walking us through your investment process is the importance of having a strong balance sheet. And that's something that we paid a lot of attention to as well. That's when we are thinking about downside risk, we spent a lot of our time looking at balance sheet. And um, I, I would like to ask you, how do you approach the balance sheet? What, what are you exactly looking for? You know, my preference is for more ca- is for cash and no debt and, and no, uh, you know, no other things that are quasi-debt or debt-like. So no preference shares or no uh, underfunded pensions and so on. Often, most of the time, that's that's not possible. Most of the time, there's some debt or some prefs or something else in there. And it's necessary then to look at the strength of the business relative to those long-term liabilities and debt, quasi-debt-like things that sit on the balance sheet. So uh, basically, it's a very simple idea, and that is that, uh, that the business, the, the, the cash flows or the uh, the operating income is materially bigger than or is material relative to the debt so they can pay it off in a very short period of time. And, you know, I, I, I have a preference for I want positive free cash flows. And I think that the, the single best metric that demonstrates balance sheet health and future business strength is when uh, a company is, is undervalued first but also when the management is buying back stock or paying down debt because that indicates that 
the cash flows are real. They can be used for something like uh, managing the capital structure. And in addition, it shows that management is thinking about shareholders when the stock price is compressed. Do, do you make any adjustments to the cash balance or when a company has a very large portfolio of security holdings? Do you, do you make the, 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 the assumption that, well, if, if I look at the balance sheet where cash has been around for a very long time and that has not been, is not being deployed, then to a certain extent I don't have control over that cash? So I make an adjustment to that? I don't because I think sometimes that's, uh, that, either, that one of the reasons that companies get un, undervalued is that they have that very lazy balance sheet and folks get tired with uh, waiting for them to do something with the capital. And I think Japan uh, in its entirety is a pretty yeah. good example of that where everybody could see that they had lots of cash on the balance sheet, but it was all locked up and they didn't look like they were ever going to do anything with it. But recently, Japan has started initiating buybacks and buying back a lot of stock. And so that does seem, that message does seem to be getting through. I think that I would rather have the safety of having the cash on the balance sheet even if management's not doing the right thing, because I think that it does attract activists and attracts private equity firms. It attracts fundamental investors like me who are prepared to be patient and wait and potentially to push uh, push management to do something with it. Okay. Um, and but my next question, given the importance of, of cash, and actually we, we like cash a lot. Um, there, there, there have been some debates um, with different members of the team and whether whether you should how you should treat that cash, but um, in in a world of negative interest rates, um, I was reading to uh, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to read uh, Howard Marks' uh, recent memo where he's discussing the what might be what might what his best guess at what might be causing the the current environment in interest rates. One of the things that uh, he was saying uh, as an impact, as a consequence, is, well, companies, you might, find, you might find yourself in this very weird world where companies with a lot of cash on the balance sheet get uh, penalized because they have to pay the banks to hold that cash, whereas companies with a lot of leverage um, do very well just because they get the benefit of, 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 of the other side of that trade. Right, and I think we've I think we've seen that over the last ten years that uh, the stronger balance sheets have been less attractive to investors, and the uh, the weaker balance sheets have been more attractive, which is and and increasingly so as that as the world has moved towards and through negative interest rates. I think that if if it if it does in fact penalise a value company, if a company becomes undervalued because it holds a lot of sh- a lot of cash on the balance sheet, that's a signal to management that they should be buying back stock and they should be buying it back hand over fist. Mm. Yeah. Um, And I guess you've had to endure um, many of these questions before where um, people that are not very uh, value advocates will say that value is actually dead. And that uh, history has proven over the last 10 years that the strategy isn't working anymore and they will post different theories on why is that the case. Um, what, what are your thoughts about the whole values that argument? Yeah, I, I mean, I have some sympathy for that argument. If we look back over the last 30 years, uh, the late 1990s weren't great for value. And then value had a pretty good run through the first 
half or so of the last decade, and then it's been a less uh, good run for value uh, over the last decade. So really, possibly out of the last 30 years, value has really only outperformed for five or maybe seven of those years. Um, so I, I understand why they would make that argument. I think that the the counter to it, though, is that the logic of value investing is so compelling. The idea is not that you're trying to buy these things at a low ratio to whatever it might be, to their book value or to their earnings or to their cash flow. The idea is just that you're trying to pay less for what they're worth. You're trying to buy them for less than what they're worth. And the bigger the discount that you can get control of these things at or the bigger the discount that you can get invested in these things, the better that you should do over the very long term. And if we look at individual sectors, so technology has been very strong, but the value, uh, if you're a value investor inside the technology sector, you could have done very well. And in fact, you've probably outperformed in your sector. The issue has been that if you're a value investor and you look across the whole universe or you look across every sector, you're just underinvested in sectors like tech because they are relatively more expensive than other sectors like energy and financials. And so the portfolios for value investors tend to be more concentrated in asset-heavy uh, industries and industries like financials, which have had a which had their own problems a decade ago, and energy, which has been crushed by the oil price. So I, I, I understand the argument, but I think that the reason is more uh, the sector composition of the portfolios than it is uh, anything prob any, any problem with the strategy. So um, I, I'm still a, a huge advocate, and I think that the best time to be a value investor is when everybody says that it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I... I... I find it interesting that every time that value has underperformed, if you go back in history and you just do a Google search, you will find towards the, the end of the 1990s, uh, the media saying, well, value investing is dead, value, in value investing is not working anymore. There is this great, I don't know if you've seen this or come across this, the Barron's uh, 1999 December um, cover where they are asking the question, um, what's wrong with Warren Buffett or something along those lines. And then there's right. a whole article about him having underperformed the market for the last three years and saying that he's out of touch. And the other nice thing about that article is when they say something along the lines of, well, he's turning 70 and there are questions about whether or not he's going to be uh, around for much longer. And then, right. and then a few months after that, um, there's the bust. And then there's this other great piece uh, in uh, 1991, and it, I think it's June or July, and this is institutional investors. And again, on the cover, they say something along the lines, um, um, if the, uh, the value investors are an extinct species or something along those lines. <laughs> and then they go on to interview some people in the market, and they were saying that, and this is 1991, so this is pre-internet. 1991, they say, well, the value investors don't get it anymore. Like conditions has, have changed. They don't understand the markets and the economy in the current environment. And this just seems to be keep repeating itself. Um, right. Oh, I think that that's I think that that's exactly right. And you can look back. I, you know, the the uh, there's f the fam of French data. Ken French has a website where you can look at any number of. Uh, the return streams to various different value strategies, price to free cash flow, price to earnings, price to book value. And you can find that there are five or six very distinct cycles that lasted two to three to five years 
where uh, value investing underperformed. But the uh, the outperformance over the full cycle is enormous. It's massive. And so you're sort of paid as a value investor to endure periods of underperformance. That's really what uh, being a value investor is. And that's a double-edged sword. It means that, you know, the, the, it takes a long time to shake the value guys out. But I've definitely seen just uh, anecdotally, there's been a big shift in the US, particularly where value investors who had been deep value investors in the early 2000s, value investors who are more my style, have become increasingly growthy investors, paying more for high growth, high return on invested capital. And so they look at if this company can compound at a high rate for a long period of time, it's going to be worth much, much more in the future. And so this price that we're paying today, even though on any traditional metric it looks very high, it will be undervalued. And that's been a good bet for some of the last uh, five years in particular. But I don't know that it has been a good bet over the full data set. And so if we have in fact entered a brand new era, then value investors have to adapt and become more like the growth-oriented value investors I was just describing then. But my, I, I think more likely we're just we're at the peak of a cyclical boom and we're going to go back through and we'll, we'll, go, we'll, have a, we'll have a bust at some stage and then there'll be a very good period for undervalued companies again. Uh, I've I've heard you say before in other interviews that you've given, or even when you were actually interviewing someone, that the main difference between this cycle and the one at the end of the towards the end of the 1990s is that at the end of the 1990s, on an absolute basis, and you you will correct me if I'm wrong, um, value was very cheap, so it was cheap on absolute basis and on a relative basis, but that around this cycle, on an absolute basis value stocks aren't that cheap um, relative to history. Is that, is that correct? Right. So this is uh, – you can look at this any number of ways, but I just – I direct people to the Ken French data because it's free online. You just go to Ken French data or just Google Ken French data and you'll be able to find these return streams that are updated on a monthly basis. And you can see uh, – you can see the – so, for example, if we're talking about price to free cash flow, you can look at – the average yield of each of these. So they, they, he divides the data in various different ways, but he divides it into tercels, which is three equally sized portfolios, or he divides it into quintiles, which is five equally sized portfolios, or into deciles, which is 10 equally sized portfolios. And if we look at the decile portfolio, you can find the most expensive 10% and the cheapest 10%. And you can look at the yield of each of those portfolios. Now, the most expensive 10% has a negative yield. That means that those companies, on average, lose money. The cheapest 10% have a have the best yield, have the biggest yield. So they they currently, I think, they're earning around 16%. So your your price to the cash flow that you're paying is about 16%. So um, when you look at the over the uh, over the on average, I think it's closer to about 21%. So by that measure, the value stocks are actually a little bit expensive relative to the long run mean. I think they're about 50% rich, but the overvalued stocks are three or four times as expensive as they have been on average in the past. So what I think happens when we go through the next drawdown, or maybe we don't even need a drawdown, maybe the market just uh, corrects itself gradually over time. I think that's much less likely, but that's a possibility too. Uh, 
what will happen is that the expensive stocks will come down enormously. I think they could be down 75 or 80 percent or more. And I think that value stocks could come down, say, 50 percent to get to a long run mean. So I think that the best way to execute it, the value strategy is going to be in a long, short portfolio. But I do think that uh, you'll be much, much safer just being invested long only in the value portfolio than you will be in any other part of the market. And in fact, I think that value is the only portfolio, the only strategy that's really primed to outperform over the next decade. Everything else, quality, um, momentum, um, yield, everything else looks very, very expensive to me. Um, have you come across this argument where um, some people have been saying that so, so, so value investors believe in reversion to the mean. Reversion to the mean is very powerful and is, is central to the investment, uh, to the value in, uh, investing thesis, right? Uh, but some people have been saying that when you're doing or you're looking at historical averages, uh, going back in time for 100 or 130 years, that data set is a little bit misleading because the world shifted over the course of the last 20 years, given the leap that the internet provided. So right. I, so there's, there's, uh, there's two responses to that. One, there's an interesting research paper by O'Shaughnessy Asset Management where they looked at a similar period of disruption and they said the introduction of the car and the building out of all the roads and the infrastructure and the gas stations and everything else that had to, to had to go alongside the car as we transitioned away from horse and buggy and so forth uh, that that had a sim there, there was a similar period and that was in the that was in the uh, 1920s and it lasted uh, I think it was 16 years and it was about 1926 to 1941 as everybody went from owning a horse to just about everybody having a car similar yeah. kind of impact to the uh, internet people sort of took about something like that 16 years and if you look at the price to book value data you see a similar there was a 16 year period in that 1920 to 1941 1926 to 41 something like that where uh price to book value got destroyed but then uh after a while that was just that that uh went back to a much more usual market for value where value started working again. And you have to remember that portfolios are reconstituted. Most value investors aren't just holding on to a single value stock and watching that stock go to zero. They're reconstituting the portfolios on a regular basis. So if you own something and it has, a, you know, I'm, I'm buying it on a historical free cash flow ratio of whatever I want to buy it with a 10% or a 15% yield. If I'm wrong and that, that, yield doesn't recover, the yield keeps on going down, that will cease to be a value stock and I'll reconstitute the portfolio with something else that has a better yield. So we're, we're through one of these extended periods where it looks like uh, there's a transformation. But it's not, it's not the case that individual companies take over whole industries. What tends to happen is that the incumbents adopt the, the technology. And that's certainly the case. Remember the first dot-com boom, they thought all of these dot-com companies would uh, would would be able to wipe out all of the incumbents. But instead what happened was all of the incumbents just got a website and for the most part started selling over the web. Similar things happening now. I think that this is more like a traditional 
just a cyclical boom rather than a really transformational period. But either way, we're getting closer to the end of it than we are uh, at the start of it. So I think that uh, mean reversion certainly still does work, that the idea that you can buy something and get get a fatter cash flow than you can from something else that might be losing money, I still find that to be pretty compelling logic. And you can hold something like that. And as the cash flow, as the price in, in increases and the, the cash flow yield goes down, you transition to something else that's got a fat cash flow, fatter cash flow yield. You know, that's just traditional value investing and that's how it works. Are you, are you looking at um, any specific industries uh, at the moment that are falling on your, under your radar? Yeah, I think financials are, are deeply undervalued in the States. Uh, I don't know so much globally. I, I think that it, it, you have to be a little bit jurisdiction specific when you're looking at these yeah. things. But in the States, it's the, by far and away the most undervalued sector. And I think that the reason for that is the uh, memories of 2007, 8, 9 are still very vivid for many investors who are around through that period. But now the companies are totally different to the way that they were then. They're all, if they're, if they're all overcapitalized, if anything, but they're certainly properly capitalized and they're generating lots of free cash flow. They're buying back lots of stock. They're very interesting companies from a value investor's perspective. So I, I think it's financials. Um, we, we've been invested in financials for the best of the last, I would say, eight years. That's, that has been our largest weighting in, the, in, the, in all different portfolios. It's so mine we, too. We, we shared that, that view with you and... Uh, and and yeah, well, well, let's let's hope that people uh, <laughs> if, um, become more 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 sweetened to the to the financials. Uh, um, and and now that we're coming to to, to an end, um, I just wanted to ask you. So we we've been pushing every time that we meet uh, our clients and and new prospective investors, we keep telling them that this is the best opportunity in a generation. Yeah. That value has not underperformed for such an, an extended period of time um, since probably the 1930s. Um, but the, the the question that they people always ask is, okay, so what's what's going to be the catalyst? What's going to turn around the tide? And and what's the size of that opportunity? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I don't know. I would say that I think that the last great opportunity was the late 1990s. And I think that this is an opportunity on the scale of the 1990s. And then value went on to have uh, some of its best performance ever through the early 2000s. So I think there's likely that we see some very good performance for value coming up. The catalyst is a much harder question to answer that, you know, as any value investor will tell you, I can tell you that it's undervalued, but I don't know when the market is going to recognize the undervaluation. I sort of think that it's possible that we've already seen the catalyst for this time around. And I think it's possibly WeWork being unable to get through the IPO because it was just one of the more egregious uh, examples of venture capitalists just sort of abdicating their responsibility to exercise any adult supervision over that company and the self-dealing with the the CEO and so on. I think that um, SoftBank has a big part to do with that because they raised an enormous fund, you know, which is a debt fund, which not a lot of folks know. It's a, It's got a big uh, preferred dividend that it has to pay to the tune of 7% every year. So they had to invest that money very quickly. And that distorted Silicon Valley to some extent because 
everybody knew that SoftBank would give better terms than everybody else and would give more money. And they would often go in and put more money into a company than the company itself was seeking. So I think that it's all of that venture capital money that has distorted this market to some extent. And I think that now that that seems to be um, that that game seems to have been shown to be you know, the problems with that game seem to be surfacing now. And all of these IPOs, as they they list Uber, Lyft, Blue Apron, GoPro, uh, Beyond Meat, uh, it, all of these busted IPOs make it harder and harder for venture capitalists to raise more funds and keep on distorting the market. So, I think that it's it's entirely possible. So value has had. On uh, August 27th, value had its best day in 10 years and momentum had its worst day in 10 years. They said it was a five sigma move. Anybody who's a quant will tell you that it's not normally distributed, so that's a silly metric to use. But basically, the idea is that it was a very big move for value and a very big move against momentum. Value was strong for a few weeks and then it softened up a little bit. But for the last few weeks, it's had some strength again. So I think that it's possible that we've seen the bottom and value is now starting to work. And uh, I, the funniest thing is that all of the arguments are loudest right now that value isn't working and can't work again uh, right when value's already turned. Um, I, was, I, I, was, I shared that view on WeWork. Um, I read somewhere today saying that, um, yes, it's a big, it, 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 it's a bad thing what happened. The valuation at forty-seven billion was outrageous. Many people were not not willing to commit capital to an even higher valuation. At some point, I think that someone was talking about north of eighty billion dollars or something like that. Um, but but someone was saying today that the um, the impact of WeWork should not would not will not spread around because at the end of the day, okay, the impact might be in in certain cities, the real estate. Uh, gets a little bit of a bump, uh, but other than that, it wouldn't spread out as as some people might have thought. Um, I don't know. That's something that I read today. I don't know if it impacts the economics, but I think that it impacts the psychology of investors. I yeah. think that if you look at the the companies that have performed best over the last decade, they've tended to be software as a service, compounded type companies, very asset light, and the the signature of each of these companies is that they've expanded their multiples extraordinarily. So that, and, and you can look at price to revenue, price to gross profits, price to EBITDA. All of those multiples have just expanded from, you know, if you if you thought that thirty times was expensive, well now you're looking at sixty times or ninety times. And if your assumptions are sufficiently optimistic that you think that these things can grow into enormous businesses that will uh, be able to face down any competition that they might meet, then it might make sense to pay those sort of nifty 50 multiples for these companies. But I think more likely uh, at some stage, you just can't get any more return out of these businesses. They just can't grow sufficiently big. And they're, they're sort of, they're much more easy to compete with because it's so easy to start a business. It's so easy to start an online business. You just need some software engineers and you can build something similar and if you can build a better mousetrap then people will flock to you and i think that the thing that really uh i think that investors eventually get tired of that game and they 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 start looking for uh, a business with a with pretty good cash flows and it's it's defensible and i i think that we've seen it 
I think we've seen the start of it. Tobias, um, thank you very much for your time. This has been great. This has been super interesting. If you are ever in London, let us know. And and, and we'll go out and, and keep talking about value, if that's, if that's something. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me on, Juan. I had a really good time. <laughs>